right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Today we're going to study readings number six and seven of our Torah portion, which is Ki Teitze. So I'm going to pull up the reading. Hold on, let's pull it up on my end. And then we are going to jump in. I believe this week's Torah portion has the most mitzvot of any Torah portion. In other words, just sheer quantity of different variety of commandments that are mentioned. This one takes the cake. So always a new subject around the corner. So let's jump into our sixth reading. Let me just double check, make sure we got through the fifth yesterday. We did. Number six. Okay. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse number five. When a man takes a new wife. So that means a newlywed couple. So when, and referring to the, the husband, he shall not go out to the army, nor shall he be subjugated to anything associated with it. He shall remain free for his home for one year and delight with his wife whom he has taken. Beautiful mitzvah. Beautiful idea. We call this Shana Rishona, the first year. Typically, even till this very day, couples will avoid, you know, very um, strenuous or otherwise uh, time-consuming or being away, uh, things, plans that keep them away from each other or that really involve a lot of, you know, a lot of um, strenuous activities. So the idea is that for the first year, the couple should really solidify the relationship, get to know each other. You know, there's a difference between pre-commitment, post-commitment. So even if uh, the two parties know each other decently well before they get married, there's a difference between marriage and before marriage, between before marriage and being married. So the idea here is that there should be a year, at least one year, where the husband is not going out to battle, not going to war. He's at home with his wife. I mean, he could also work a little bit, but, but primarily he's at home with his wife. Let's continue. Number six, new mitzvah. One shall not take the lower or the upper millstone as security for a loan. So if, uh, if, if somebody's taking a loan and you're lending them, so don't take their millstone right, as security because he is taking a life as security. What that means is that that person may make their, 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 um, their money through grinding wheat into flour. So you can't take the millstone because the millstone is, is their tools of a livelihood. So what this means is, in the broader context, when the lender takes uh, collateral, security for the loan, you cannot take something that that person needs. You're going to say, yeah, but I need, I need security, I need collateral. Okay, fine. But you can't take something that is absolutely essential to that person's livelihood. And there's, that can be expanded in many different directions. Right? That can be expanded in many different directions. Okay. I have a few ideas on this, but we'll, we'll leave it for now. Verse number seven. If a man is discovered kidnapping any person from among his brothers of the children of Israel and treats him as a slave and sells him, that thief shall die. So human trafficking, kidnapping, enslaving, selling another human being, yeah, that is liable for the death penalty. So that you shall clear out the evil from among you. Very, very clear here what the, what the penalty is. By the way, I've told you, that I've, I've mentioned this many times in the Ten Commandments. 
when it says, thou shalt not steal, it's referring to human, human theft, kidnapping, and, uh, and human trafficking. That, because it's a capital, the other commandments and the Ten Commandments are essentially high, high severe capital crimes. So that one is not just don't steal, uh, I mean, also don't steal, uh, I don't know, out of the cash register. But it, it, it means primarily don't steal people, don't kidnap human beings, and then treat them as a slave or sell them. Yes, Ray. Rabbi, um, does that also go for brothers that sell their brothers into slavery, like um, Joseph and, and his brothers? They that, put them in the pit, and then the wagon came by, and they sold him. That is... Um, yeah, so that's what the Roman emperor said to the ten martyrs later on in Jewish history. He said that the brothers were never punished for kidnapping and selling their brothers. So, they're, so therefore I'm going to kill ten of you to replace the ten brothers in exchange for the ten brothers who were never punished. That was his rationale. If you're asking from a place of, of halacha, one could say the many answers that are given to explain their behavior. They thought that he was trying to kill them. They were acting in self-defense or they thought that he was, you know, they, they, there are different ways of explaining their behavior, rationalizing their behavior. I don't know if I like it. I don't know if you'll like it. It is what it is. I mean, but in, in, in the books, their, their behavior has an explanation. So would it, in Jewish law, would it be liable for the death penalty? Probably not, based on any number of those explanations. But in a, but a case of human trafficking, yeah. Again, the, the really, the core of those explanations are that they thought their life was in danger. They were acting in self-defense. Self-defense, there's a different metric. There's a different algorithm when it comes to self-defense. But outside of self-defense, yeah, it's, it's a death penalty. It's a capital crime. Human trafficking is a, is a capital crime. Let's continue. Again, the Torah moves very quickly through different commandments. So if you like a variety, here's your variety. Eight, verse number eight. Be cautious regarding the lesion of Tzarat to observe meticulously and you shall do according to all that the Levite priests instruct you. As I've commanded you, sorry, as I've, as I've commanded them, so shall you observe to do. In other words, when it comes to Tzarat, which is the the white lesions or patches on the skin that indicates some sort of spiritual impropriety, you have to follow the protocol, go to the Levite priest, that means the Kohanim, not the Levim, that goes to the Kohanim, the priest, and they'll tell you what to do, but follow that protocol. Don't try to neutrogena it up. It's a spiritual thing and requires a spiritual solution. Okay, number nine. Basically, verse eight is don't sweep Problems under the rug, that doesn't get rid of them. Deal with the problem at the source and get rid of it. Number nine, remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam. Speaking of Tzarat, remember what God did to Miriam on the way when you went out of Egypt. When you, so that's remembering Miriam speaking negatively about her brother to her other brother. So she was gossiping about one brother, Moses, to another brother, Aaron, and God gave her tzarat as a, as a consequence. So remember that and don't do it. Verse number 10, don't gossip, even about family, especially about family. Verse number 10, when you lend your fellow Jew any item, 
You shall not enter his home to take his security. You shall stand outside. And the man to whom you are extending the loan shall bring the security to you outside. Don't go into his house. It's not nice. You're not granting them their dignity. And if he is, verse 12, and if he is a poor man, you shall not lie down to sleep with his security. In other words, if he gives you pajamas as security, you're not allowed to keep them. You have to give them back. You shall return the security to him by sunset so that he may lie down to sleep in his garment and he will bless you and it will be counted for you as merit before the Lord your God. And I need to explain how crazy, how absurd this, this law is. It's absurd in a beautiful way. The Torah says if you're lending somebody money, you give a person a loan of 100 bucks, 50 bucks, 20 bucks, and you say, what's the collateral? And they say, okay, here, I have, a, I have uh, some garments. These would be um, nighttime garments, pajamas or something like that. You have to give it back to him at night because he needs to sleep in them. Yeah, but what's the whole point of the security is that I'm holding on to it until he gives me back the loan. Doesn't matter. Security, security. That's not, whatever, security, a hidden security, a hair. Bottom line is somebody needs the garment. You have to give it to them. That's, that's the rule. You have to give it back to them. They need it. Let's pull up some Rashi's over here. Beautiful Rashi's. Um... Be cautious regarding the lesions of Tzara'at. Rashi says that you do not remove any of the signs of uncleanliness by peeling off the skin. Okay, that's uh, I said Neutrogena. Rashi says peeling it off. Um, remember Miriam? If you wish, Rashi says, to take precautions against being stricken with Tzara'at, the context, the, the juxtaposition, then do not speak Lashon Hara, slander. Remember what was done with Miriam, who spoke against her brother Moses and was stricken with Surat. Let's continue. You shall not lie down to sleep with, while you have his security in your possession. And we're talking about if it's a garment worn at night. And Rashi says, if it is a garment worn by day, then you have to return it to him in the morning. So let's say he gives you his, um, I don't know, daytime garment. You know, back in the day, they didn't have closets full of clothing. They had maybe, you know, a few different items. So if it's a garment that's worn by day, you have to give back the security in the morning. That's it. Torah says he will bless you when you act compassionately to your debtor, to the one who owes you money. If you act compassionately, God will bless you. Or sorry, that person will bless you and God will also bless you. So Rashi says, if he does not bless you, it will still be counted for you as a merit. In other words, even if he doesn't bless you, God will bless you. So either way, it's a good thing. It's the right thing. Let's continue reading number seven. Let me pause here for a moment. Any questions or comments on what we just read in reading six? Checking in, going once, going twice. Okay. So yeah, so Sarah, it's sure. about being compassionate. Exa exactly. Exactly. It's about being compassionate, but it's a crazy context because the context is where the person owes you money and you need to hold on to security to make sure you get back your money. And you would think that security means business is business. Like, I love you and whatever, but business, I, you know, security is security. Collateral is collateral. And the Torah says, no, don't let business get in the way of humanity, right? Oh, it's a loan. So I need, I need to hold collateral for the loan. Sure, but the guy needs a garment to sleep at night. The guy needs a garment to wear by, the day, by, by day. And so, again, it's, it's about being compassionate, but recognizing the supremacy of compassion over 
business. And oftentimes people will say, I want to separate the two. There is a time for compassion and a time for business. And the Torah says, even in business, you got to have compassion. And that's another level, in my opinion. That's like next level. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14, reading number 7. Speaking of compassion, you shall not withhold the wages of a poor or destitute hired worker, of your brothers or of the strangers, or of your strangers who are with you, who are, sorry, who are in your land within your cities. In other words, if somebody is working, you, working for you as a day laborer, you cannot withhold the wages and pay them late. You have to pay them on time. Verse 15 says that. You shall give him his wage on the day, on his day, and not let the sun set over it. What that means is don't let the sun set before giving this person their wages, for he is poor and he risks his life for it. A person puts their life into their work. You know, sometimes the work is risky physically. Either way, it's taxing physically and spiritually and psychologically and emotionally. So they, they put in the work, you have no right to not pay them on time. Pay them on time so that he should not cry out to the Lord against you so that there should be sin upon you. In other words, if you don't pay him on time, then he's going to cry out to God because he needs money to live and it's going to be counted as a sin. It's not going to be good. Right? Um, Rashi says he risks his life. For this wage, he risks his life. And Rashi gives examples of people who risk their life in their work. For instance, he climbed up a ramp or suspended himself from a tree. <laughs> climbing up a ramp doesn't sound so dangerous, right? Climbing up a ramp, like big deal. But I think it means, you know, when you climb up to a, a high place or you're suspending yourself from a tree, I picture like, you know, window washers, you know, suspended from, you know, these places. And there's a lot of examples of, of different vocations where people put their life at risk and uh, it's not right. It's not right. Rashi says, in any case, even if he does not cry out to the Lord against you, it's still sinful to not pay them. However, punishment is meted out faster by virtue of one who cries out. So if you're causing someone pain to the point that they're crying out to God, I'm not you, but if one does that, oh boy, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. Next, verse 16. Fathers, and again, if you have a question, feel free to jump in even before I ask, does anyone have any questions? Verse number 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of sons, nor shall sons be put to death because of fathers. So one is not punished. Intergenerational punishment doesn't, is not a thing. Each man shall be put to death for his own transgression. That's it. You don't punish the kid for the parent or the parent for the kid. You punish the one for their own indiscretion. Next, all of these are different mitzvot. Number 17, you shall not pervert the judgment of a stranger or an orphan. Which means, do not, do not take, take advantage of those that are vulnerable. And you shall not take a widow's garment as security for a loan. Whether it's a nighttime or daytime garment, do not take the garment of a widow as security. Take something else, but not a garment. Not a garment. It's not nice, it's not, it's not right. Let's see the Rashis over here. 
Um, I'm going to skip the first one. Here we go. Rashi says, do not take a widow's garment as security. Rashi says, not at the time of the loan, but when the, when the debtor has defaulted. Even when she hasn't repaid the loan, you cannot keep or take a garment as security, as repayment. You have to let her come up with the money. Don't take a widow's garment as security or, or payment for the loan. That's what Rashi adds based on the classic understanding of our sages. Verse number 18. Again, a lot of the mitzvot are about compassion and about specific compassion toward the one who's vulnerable. There's a strong theme in this week's Torah portion about taking care of those that are vulnerable. You see someone vulnerable, don't pounce on the vulnerable. That's what a lion does, right? The lion sees an injured animal and strikes. Don't be, a, don't be an animal. Don't be a wild animal. Be a mensch. Be a good person. When you see someone that's vulnerable, protect them, right? Look out for their best interests. Make sure others aren't harming them. But don't hurt them, God forbid. That's, that's, that's Meshuggah. That's crazy. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Remember that you were the slave. You were vulnerable. And God redeemed you. God took care of you when you were vulnerable. So therefore, you do the same. Make sure that you take care of the vulnerable. Along those lines, and we spoke about this yesterday, I think Ray mentioned this. Verse 19. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to take it. It shall be left for the stranger, the orphan, and the widow, so that the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Again, you know, I, we could have started the Torah portion with this theme and counted how many times is this theme underlying the various mitzvot. The, our obligation, our human, Jewish, divine, spiritual, universal, whatever you want to call it, obligation to care for those that are vulnerable. And God forbid not to try to harm them. God forbid not to take advantage of the one that's vulnerable. Okay. So if you leave, uh, if you forget a sheaf in the field, leave it. Leave it for the one who's a little, a little bit more vulnerable and needs some extra help. Verse 20, when you beat your olive tree, okay, beating the olive tree means you shake it for the olives to fall down. You shall not deglorify it by picking all its fruit after you. It shall be left for the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Leave some olives on the tree for those that are more vulnerable than you. When you pick the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean after you. That means you do an initial run and don't go back to empty it out. Why? Because you're supposed to leave some grapes for whom it shall be left for the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Again, take care of those that might be more vulnerable or that are more vulnerable. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this thing. Same verse, 22 and 18. Same idea. You were a slave in Egypt, that's why you're getting this mitzvah, because you were vulnerable and you know how it feels to be vulnerable. You know how it feels to be picked on, to be subjugated, to be beat up, to be bullied because you're the minority. You know how that feels. You know how it feels to not have the power to be vulnerable and to be abused. Don't ever do that to someone else. Therefore, we have all these mitzvahs. All of these mitzvot are the same thing. 
don't withhold their wages. They're relying on you for money. They just worked for you today. And they're vulnerable. They need you to get, they gave you the work and now you need to give them the money. Oh, I'll give it to you tomorrow. That's not good enough tomorrow. They gave you the work today. You got to give them the money today. Right? They needed a loan. They're vulnerable. They needed money. You gave them a loan. You're going to take back the collateral. How are they going to sleep tonight? How are they going to work the next day if you have their clothing? A widow's garments, you can't take at all. Etc., etc., etc. So many mitzvot here in this Torah portion are about caring for those that are vulnerable. Let's continue. If there is a Deuteronomy chapter 25, if there is a quarrel between men and they approach the tribunal, the court, and the judges judge them and they acquit the innocent one and condemn the guilty one. So one guy is found innocent and one guy is found guilty. And it shall be. If the guilty one has incurred the penalty of lashes, that doesn't mean lashes, it means, right? That the judge shall make him lean over and flog him in front of him, commensurate with his crime in number. There was this penalty, malchus, lashes, that was in some cases, that was, uh, that was applied, again, if certain things lined up, whatever, theoretically this could be applied. The court shall flog him, he shall flog him with 40 lashes, and he shall not exceed, lest he give him a much more severe flogging than these 40 lashes, and your brother will be degraded before your eyes. So it has to be maximum 40, typically maximum 39 actually, um, and or less. Okay? Which I think brings out the vulnerability even in this, even in this mitzvah. I'm going to want to go along with this idea of vulnerability. Even when someone's deserving of lashes and is getting the punishment, don't go more than whatever number it is. Why? Because that will be degrading. Your brother will be degraded before your eyes. Even someone in a vulnerable position of being punished and admonished by the court, don't overdo it. Don't break someone. Don't humiliate someone. Let's continue. I, by the way, and I know this, this question about lashes, and do we, is that a thing? Isn't that cruel and unusual punishment? I, I don't really, today is not the day to get into it, but it's, that's for another time, another, another topic. But the point here is that even in the context of that penalty, we don't do it in a way that degrades the other. Let's continue verse number four. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is threshing the grain. Because when it's around the grain, it wants to eat. So you're going to muzzle the ox. It's not fair. It's not right. It's vulnerable. It's hungry. And you're going to muzzle it. Not, not okay. If brothers reside together, new law. Brothers reside together and one of them dies having no son. The dead man's wife shall not marry an outsider. Rather, her husband's brother shall be intimate with her, making her a wife for himself, thus performing the obligation of a husband's brother with her. This is called yibum. Essentially, if a couple is married, they don't have children, and the husband passes away, the wife, there's a mitzvah for the wife to marry the brother of the husband, the brother-in-law. So it says, she shall not marry an outsider, rather the husband's brother. 
and it will be. The eldest brother who performs the lever marriage, if she can bear a child, will succeed in the name of his deceased brother, so that his, the deceased brother's name shall not be obliterated from Israel. So we have this idea that this can perpetuate the, the deceased husband's, the, the deceased brother's name by his brother marrying the, the widow and, uh, and having offspring. Powerful, also vulnerable. Same theme. Who's she going to marry? Here you have a widow, right? Tragically, her husband passes away. Who's she going to marry? The Torah says the most obvious one to marry is the brother of the husband or a relative of the husband. Let not her have to look for a husband. It's a mitzvah that he should marry her. Take care of her. Don't leave her in a vulnerable state of being a widow. Again, today there are different dynamics in our society. But back in the day, the reality is that a husband was needed for various things. You know, a husband was needed for parnasa, for livelihood, for, uh, for, uh, for other things. So, so it, it's not good to leave her in a vulnerable place to find someone else to marry. So make it, make it, make it easy, so to speak. Make it, have a, have a path of a plan forward. That's what it is. Verse number seven, again, about making sure that vulnerability is not, uh, trying to eliminate or reduce vulnerability. Now, verse seven, but if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, the brother says, no, I don't want to marry her. The brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders. And she should say, my husband's brother has refused to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He does not wish to perform the obligation of a husband's brother with me. So she says, look at this guy. He's obligated to marry me or he's encouraged to marry me. He doesn't want to do it. Now, you can't force someone to marry someone else. Torah, Torah doesn't, doesn't believe in forced marriages. So he doesn't want, he doesn't want. He's supposed to. You can't force him. So what happens? Chalitza. Verse 8. Then the elders of a city shall, shall call him and speak to him, and he shall stand up and say, let him declare, I do not wish to take her. Right? He has to make a declaration. He has to be able to say it, to articulate it. Then his brother's wife shall approach him before the eyes of the elders and remove his shoe from his foot. And she shall spit before, the, before his face, not into his face, but in front of him, and answer him and say, thus shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's household. In other words, shame on you for not wishing to marry me and to perpetuate your deceased brother's name. Shame on you for not taking care of me. Shame on you for not taking care of the legacy of your brother who's passed away. Shame on you for saying, no, I don't want to marry her. And the family, and that family shall be called in Israel the family of the one whose shoe was removed. It's kind of a bit of a... You know, calling, calling them out publicly. Right? Beit Chalutza now. The family of the one whose shoe was removed. She takes off his shoe. She spits. Thus shall be done to the one who doesn't want to perpetuate the brother's legacy. Let's continue. If two men, a man and his brother, are fighting together, and the wife of one of them approaches to rescue her husband from his assailant. So those two guys are fighting and the wife steps in. And what happens? And she stretches forth her hand and grabs hold of his private parts. Yes, you heard that correct. So two guys are fighting. 
and the wife of one of them comes in and she decides to take matters quite literally into her own hands and she grabs the other guy in a certain place. So the Torah says, now don't, this is not literal. You shall cut off her hand, not literally. You shall, have, you shall not have pity, again, not literally. What, what this means is financial liability. This was never understood in a literal way, but always in a financial way, as this Rashi explains. You shall cut off her hand, Rashi says. This verse is not to be understood literally, but rather it means the following. She must pay monetary damages to recompense the victim for the embarrassment he suffered through her action. Not only was he injured or hurt in the moment by her grabbing what she grabbed, but it's also embarrassing, right? It's embarrassing to get, uh, all right, two guys are fighting, and next thing you know, okay. So it's, it's embarrassing. She embarrassed him, so that, that there's additional penalty. The amount she must pay is calculated by the court all according to the social status of the culprit and the victim. How do you know? But perhaps it means that we must actually cut off her, her very hand. Maybe it's literal. The answer is borne out from a transmission handed down to our rabbis as follows. So this is tradition, and there's even a scriptural inference. Here it says, Do not have pity. And later, when it comes to the case of conspiring witnesses, the same expression, is used. And our rabbis taught that these verses have a contextual connection. Just as there in the case of the conspiring witnesses, the little expression of the verse refers to monetary compensation. So to hear the expression, you, you must cut off her hand, refers to monetary compensation. Essentially, we have a limud, we have a derivation from Torah that this is not referring to actual physical punishment, but rather financial monetary compensation. So this verse, you shall not cut off her hand, is not meant to be understood literally. It's meant as a figurative expression. This is something that's very important. That's why we have a tradition. <coughs> that's why we have an oral Torah. Because if you try to study Torah on the inside, sorry, just from the text, you'll come up with a different version of Judaism that is not what Moses or God intended. Verse 13. You shall not keep in your pouch two different weights, one large and one small. Don't keep weights. If it says one pound, it should be a pound. Don't keep a pound weight that really weighs three quarters of a pound. But it says a pound on it. It's, it's, it's dishonest. Don't keep two different weights. That doesn't mean you can't have a pound and a half a pound. It means you can't have a mislabeled weight, which is essentially used for theft. If you're selling flour and you measure it out on one of those balance scales and you put a weight that says one pound on one side and then you measure out the flour for a pound, but meanwhile, it's not a, it's not a pound. The weight says one pound, but it's really seven-eighths of a pound. <coughs> That's a problem. You're stealing because you're charging the guy for a full pound of flour and you're not giving him a full pound. That's not kosher. You shall not keep in your house two different AFA measures, one large and one small, same idea. Rather, you shall have a full and honest weight and a full and honest measure, whether liquid or dry, in order that your days will be prolonged in the land which, your God, which the Lord your God gives you. For whoever does these things, whoever perpetrates such injustice, is an abomination to the Lord your God. Again, it's vulnerability. Somebody comes to the store, they don't know how much, they don't have their own weights. They don't have their own scales. 
You go to the store and you ask, the, you go to the deli counter. You say, give me a pound of, of uh, brisket. You're relying on the, on, the, on the seller to give you a pound. Don't take advantage of that trust by putting your thumb on the scale or having the scale a little bit off so that you're selling a pound, but you're not really giving a pound of food. It's not right. It's theft, but it's preying on the vulnerability of the person that doesn't have their own weights and measures coming to your shop. You shall remember new, new idea, and this takes us to the end of the Torah portion, and then we'll close it out. You shall remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you went out from Egypt. Remember Amalek. How he happened upon you on the way and cut off all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and he did not fear God. What's the problem with Amalek? You see what he says. Cut off all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. You know what that means? When you were vulnerable. When you were vulnerable. That's what he means. What's the problem with Amalek? Who's Amalek? Amalek is someone who sees vulnerability and attacks. That's Amalek, and that's not Jewish. That's not kosher. And that's why, and that's why Amalek needs to be destroyed. What is Amalek? The tendency inside every human being. That when they see an opening, when they see weakness, to take advantage of that. That needs to be eradicated. Every shred of that inclination needs to be eradicated from you and I. Therefore will be when the Lord your God grants you respite from all your enemies around you in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, that you shall obliterate the remembrance of Amalek from beneath the heavens you shall not forget. Never forget Amalek. Never forget what it looks like when you were attacked because you were tired and you were weak, you were vulnerable, you were in the back, and you got attacked from, from, from the back. Never forget that. And never do it to someone else. Never extend to the other that same dishonorable, horrific, horrible behavior of attacking the vulnerable. That is not kosher, it's not Jewish, it's not menchi, right? It's not, it's not, it's not on any level okay. This takes us to the end of the reading, and again, I, I know I'm repeating myself, but it's a powerful idea. And I think these last two readings really highlight this idea. Yes, there are some other ideas as well. And we could take a different angle and explain things differently and you know, come up with other insights. But today is today, and this is the angle that I want to take. The Torah is reminding us that you and I will encounter weakness in life. We will encounter those that are in a vulnerable position. We will encounter those that are in a position of weakness. And we have two choices. We could take advantage of that of that asymmetry in power. We can take advantage of that. Or we can strike when we see vulnerability and be like Amalek. Or we can seek to take care of those that are in a position of vulnerability. So if we have a certain power that they don't, so then it's lifting them up and helping them where they need to go. Or it's, whatever, I don't want to get too specific here, but the bottom line is when there's, a, when there's an asymmetry, instead of taking advantage of that, it's taking care of the person and making sure that they're okay. These are Jewish values, these are Torah values. If anybody ever tells you that Torah is old-fashioned, 
all of the things that society this second is struggling with in 2021 in progressive Western societies, progressive societies, all of the issues are boiling down to this idea that the Torah 3,300 years ago is telling us again and again and again and again and again and again. I'll keep on going, by the way. Again and again and again and again. Don't take advantage of the other one, even though you can. You can't. Morally, ethically, legally, spiritually, you can't. But you might think that you can, but don't. Because it's not cool. You were a slave. You were the vulnerable one. You know what it felt like when someone took advantage of you. Don't do that to anyone else. If only all of us would get the memo, get the message, the world would be a, an absolutely transformed place. If people used their gifts and their power to elevate the other, to help the other, as opposed to knock them down and take advantage of the other, this world would look radically different. It begins with us. It begins with you and I. All change begins with one person making a change. How can I be more sensitive to the need around me? How can I be more sensitive to those that are vulnerable? How can I share the gifts that I have with those that don't have those gifts? When we think along these lines, we're thinking Jewishly. We're thinking along the lines of Torah. We're thinking in a holy way, in a divine way. And the world is the better off for it. All right. Any questions or comments before we close out? Thank you so much, Rabbi. I do have a question for yes. Donna, if oh, that's all right. Sure, absolutely. May I? Okay. Is, so is your yoga, is it like Kabbalistic yoga, which I've seen? What do you mean by Jewish yoga? Um, you know, it'll be my first time doing Jewish yoga, so I'm just going to be inspired by nature, you know, because actually I was just talking with the Rabbi the other day, and I was saying how I enjoyed um our rosh hashanah services last year because we were outside on the bell line and the rabbi informed me that that's the basic kabbalistic tradition so and also in yoga traditional yoga the idea is to be grounded to the earth you know like so you know you want to ground your feet literally and, and then you want to elevate your arms to the sky so i'm just going to incorporate you know uh inspirationally those yes. types of things yes that's beautiful. It sounds lovely. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds amazing. By the way, I think I've mentioned one of the first programs that I did here in Atlanta, year, like back, back in the day, we did something called Kabbalah Yoga, as Sarah mentioned. The, this Kabbalah Yoga, we, got, we brought a guy from Montreal, and he did like yoga poses in the shape of the Hebrew letters. So like there was an yeah. Aleph, and there was a Bet, and, and Vav was the easiest because you just stood up straight because Vav is just... <laughs> like I could do Vav... I could do Vav like any day, like just, I could do Vav right now. It's like no big deal. But it was, it was actually really cool. And we did it uh, very ironically in urban body yoga and, and urban body studios, which was the yoga place in our neighborhood, which eventually we ended up buying that building, which is the building that we're in today. I mean, right now I'm at my house, but. The building that we're in is actually that building that housed the yoga studio that we did Kabbalah Yoga. So I'm just going to take credit for like kind of planting the mystical sparks and seeds that ultimately culminated 
in the building becoming the synagogue, Chabad house, etc., Jewish center, all that stuff. It all begins with it all begins with yoga is really the point. That's that's what it is. The exactly, and the alphabet. Sorry, Ray, what was it? I'd love to see someone do Sali. I so you know what? He has this whole chart. Um, Oh, really? So, yeah. Uh, let me see if I can That'd find the Kabbalah Yoga. Maybe you need two people. <laughs> well, so he wrote a book, Kabbalah Yoga, Adi Gozlan. Uh, Kabbalah Yoga, Embodying the Hidden Power of the Sacred Hebrew Letters. Let me see if I can find the pose for it. I mean, literally, if you Google Kabbalah Yoga, I'm no better Googler than you. You guys can just Google Kabbalah Yoga. And mm-hmm. the guy should come up. It's Adi Gozlan, guy, Chabad guy from Montreal. Um, he has, it looks like there are YouTube videos here. Hold on. So I wanted to say about, um, you know, if your husband passed away and your the brother. Yes. Yeah, he's encouraged. Uh, there's a great movie. It's called Feel the Void. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. About, about that. Yes. I see. Yeah, fill the void. It's that's a movie actually that I'm that at some point we might screen because I remember when it. Thanks for reminding me. I forgot about that movie, but I remember when it came out, there was screenings in Atlanta. I think it was in. Um, yeah, because of the Terror Festival. The Jewish Festival, but it was also like mm-hmm. in yeah, and 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 I remember Beshaita at the time that it was. Uh, Pre-acclaimed film. I found a chart of Kabbalah Yoga. I can't vouch for it. I'm not going to show it. You can find it yourself. Looks like Tzaddik here is somebody standing on their head with their feet, with their legs kind of um, (coughs) twisted a little bit to make the top of the Tzaddik. Again, above is very easy for me to do. And that's what, that's that's today's objective. We're going to do Vavs all day. All right. It's great to see everybody. Ray or Rabbi. I'm going to Spicy Beach. Do you oh, need nice. anything? Thank you for asking. That's so kind. Um, I'll be okay, but thank you. Thank you, thank you. All right, Ray and Donna and Sandrine and Olia and Sarah, great to see you guys. Shabbat Shalom. Lots Shabbat of blessings. Shalom. Take care. All right, bye guys.